Join me for our scripture reading this morning. We actually have two passages, and uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find the, fr- find the first, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, on page 569. And the second is Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, and you'll find that on page 848. Hear the word of the Lord. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And now to Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, again on page 848. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray uh, once again. Lord, we ask you to open up our hearts to understand this word. Lord, to believe it, to heed your word, to hide it in our hearts and practice it in our lives. May it shape us and chisel us and form us, Lord, after the image that you choose. We ask this for your glory and honor. Amen. Uh, One of my favorite things is to see funny warning signs, uh, trying to make a a point with humor, of course. 
for instance, in Brankston, the Lions Club has a sign up that says, Drive safely. We have two cemeteries, no hospitals. All right? <clears throat> or these we've seen all over the place. I'll just remind you of them. Children left unattended will be sold to the circus. Or children left unattended will be given an espresso and a free puppy. <laughs> or my favorite, children unattended will be given a Red Bull and a kazoo. <laughs> That's really dangerous right there. <clears throat> or this warning at the zoo. Please be safe. Do not stand, sit, climb, or lean on zoo fences. If you fall, animals could eat you, and that might make them sick. Thank you. All right? <laughs> Just concerned for the animals. Also at the zoo, do not feed fingers to the animals. All right? And then the no parking signs. The last car that parked here is still missing. Try it if you want to, right? <clears throat> Uh, Jason's Deli, just on Overton, Uh, uh, they may still have this one, but they had it one time. Parking for pickup orders only, all other cars will be crushed, okay? And then this is uh, my favorite, do not park. Do not park here. The wrath of the ancients will fall upon your head. Your shoelaces will not stay tied. Rabid squirrels will invade your home. Food in your refrigerator will mysteriously spoil. Your vehicle will start making that expensive knocking sound again. And in bold print, no one will talk to you at parties. Okay. What worse threat could there be, right, than that? Of course, other warnings and legitimate warnings are critical, right, and terrible if we don't have them. Think what a warning would have meant in December 2004 when the tsunami hit in the Indian Ocean. 230,000 people were killed. Oh, that there had been a warning, right? Or in December of, 2000, of, of 1990, cars in, uh, on I-75 in Tennessee entered a fog bank. This was early in the morning. They say, the drivers, that it was like throwing a blanket over the windshield. So car after car slammed into one another with crashes and explosions. And at the end of it, 99 cars entered into the wreck. 42 people were killed. uh, 42 people were injured. 12 were killed. Oh, if there'd been a warning, right? But it's curious with the importance of warnings that even confessing, professing Christians can be so negative about warnings. Professing Christians many times don't want to hear the warnings of coming judgment. And this is curious, isn't it? Who would not want to have a warning that the bridge is out? Who would not want a warning that there's a bomb threat? Tennessee, in fact, has spent millions of dollars on a warning system in that fog zone, and they haven't had any pileup since. Would anybody not want them to have a warning system uh, for those terrible fogs? We see in this parable, Jesus is exposing the leaders of Israel and their plan to kill him. And he warns them that God will absolutely judge them if they continue in this path. He's basically saying... The bridge is out. If you continue in this direction, you will die. 
Mark records this parable so that all of us understand that this warning does not leave us out. We're not standing in the, we're not in the stands looking at something going on that has nothing to do with us. He wants us to know that the, the, this warning given to these Jewish leaders applies to each one of us. If any one of us refuses the son as the tenants did, then we ourselves will fall under their judgment. It's a serious warning. The stakes are high. But from the outset, remember, warnings are kind. (laughs) Warnings are meant for your good, right? People risked their lives that morning in Tennessee to get in front of that fog bank so that they could warn people so that they wouldn't enter into it. That's a gracious, kind thing. And several lives were possibly saved because of that. And so here, Jesus not only warns us of this coming judgment, but as we will see, he actually comes to die for us that we might escape that judgment. You see, the same love that dies for us to escape the judgment comes to us and warns us, indeed, to escape that judgment and not to refuse him. So we'll see in this uh, warning parable. It's, it's a judgment parable, so we can call it a warning parable or warning story. That first he warns, uh, he, he, the, he begins his warning story by talking about how Israel uh, rejected the prophets, and then he culminates his warning story in how they rejected Jesus Christ. So they rejected the prophets, then they rejected. Christ, And it culminates in that, and that's when he pronounces his judgment through this story. And then we're going to look at several particular ways that we can apply this warning to ourselves. Uh, so the, he's giving us uh, a story that comes from the common life of the day. In fact, these arrangements of having a distant owner uh, were very common in that area. And, of course, they would send servants to come and manage the property and oversee the property. And the distance, though, invited the kinds of violence. And it's reported, the kinds of violence that Jesus even talks about. So you could say that Jesus is taking the farm crisis of his day and he's using it, see, to describe the history of Israel and their present crisis as Jesus himself is even there with them, okay? So this, as we saw in the background from Isaiah, the idea of a vineyard was a common picture of when God planted or, or created Israel in the promised land. It often, he often uses the image of a vine being planted or a vineyard being planted, And then proceeds with that story. And we saw in Isaiah, it was the vineyard itself that didn't produce the fruit. This time, it's the tenants, the ones who are leading the vineyard, so to speak. They're the ones being brought to judgment. And instead of the vineyard being destroyed, as it was in Isaiah, speaking of the exile of Israel, this time, the vineyard is put into new hands the hands, as we'll see, of Jesus and the apostles. 
so there's some differences, but that's the background. So when they hear vineyard, they automatically get what he's talking about. He's talking about Israel. And even these elders and priests and uh, scribes understood this and understood he was talking about them as the leaders, as the tenants, as we saw in verse 12. So Jesus is pretty upfront with his story. He knows exactly, of course, what he's, he's doing. So as he describes it, as the common uh, setup was, the tenants are put in charge of this vineyard that the owner has. They tend the, the crop, they uh, grow it, they harvest it, they sell it, and then they pay the owner a portion of the produce as their rent. But as he describes it here, when these servants come to him, they receive terrible treatment, obviously. C.H. Dodd puts it this way. The tenants pay their rent in blows, right? They pay their rent in blows. Almost as though they're saying, hey, rent this, right? Just totally despising the authority of the owner. And they're claiming, basically, the vineyard for themselves. We don't recognize you as the owner. We will do whatever we want to with this vineyard. It is ours, to do with. And so Jesus is picturing here what happened when the prophets came again and again to the leadership of Israel. Listen to how similar this sounds from Jeremiah chapter 7. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. See, it's so similar, isn't it? And even later when Jesus was risen from the dead and the church was established. Stephen, at the end of his sermon in Acts 7, brings the same idea to bear as he's speaking to the Jewish leaders and says, which prophet have you not persecuted? And there they were about to stone him, another messenger, bringing to them the, the good news of God, bringing to them as another uh, prophet. Uh, to speak the truth of God. And so he, he's described, he describes and begins his warning with Israel's response to the prophets. And you only have to think of a few of them. Elijah being hated and persecuted by Queen Jezebel. Or Je- Jeremiah being mocked and left for dead in a pit. Or Zechariah being killed within the very confines of the temple. And John the Baptist, just a few chapters earlier, being beheaded. This is the constant pattern. And here is Jesus telling a story to unveil and expose this pattern of Israel of rejecting the prophets. But then he culminates in their rejection of him. And he puts himself, you see, as a part of the prophetic line, but the final great one and separated from them in that he is the son that has come to them. And the owner's words here uh, in verse 6 and 7, verse 6 and 7, yes, uh, really are a turning point of the passage. They're a surprise because... You think by this time, either he's going to send another servant or maybe a small army, or he's going to come himself. He's going to take care of this problem. So it's a surprise that he, 
he suddenly mentions his son. You don't know he has a son. He only has one son. And then you find out, and it's a shock, you're going to send your one son into this situation? Now, this is where the, the story begins to break down as a real story, you see, as a story. Obviously, no landowner would have done that. But this is no real landowner. And, and here the story begins to take the shape of history. Because he calls him my beloved son. It's the third and final time this phrase, beloved son, comes up in Mark. You heard it at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son. Brian talked last week of the mountain of transfiguration. And we heard the voice, my beloved son. And here, isn't it tender? Jesus himself is using the words to describe himself. Then he sends another one. His beloved son. He knew his relationship with the father. had known it from all eternity. He's the beloved son. And this, you see, therefore, is a description of God's compassion upon Israel that he would send his beloved son to them. And we see this then as, as the father's last-ditch effort to reach his, his people uh, by sending even his beloved son. But, of course, he himself is killed. And they somehow must have thought that the owner was dead by now. That's why the son comes. So if they can kill the son, then the vineyard is theirs. Uh, But they had no idea, obviously, of who the owner really is. And... They show their utter contempt by not even burying the son, but killing him and throwing him over the wall to be eaten by the vultures. What greater despising could you give to the son or the father than that kind of death? They had no idea, of course, of the power, the authority, and the far reach of the owner. And it's interesting that the word owner is the Greek word kurios, which translates Yahweh in the Old Testament. And so Mark is underscoring here that the owner, uh, the Lord is underscoring, Mark using this word, that the owner is the Lord God. The Lord over all things. And it's a way to say as well to us, he's your Lord. And foolish is anyone who would abandon God and think that they will never have, have to answer for it. That he is some kind of distant, weak God who doesn't notice and doesn't care. No, the owner knows. The owner is coming. The owner will come in judgment. This is a warning to these men, to whom he's speaking, these scribes and, and Pharisees and elders and priests, this warning is coming to you. And he is appealing to their conscience, you see. He's appealing to them not to go this way, not to continue the path that they are on. In chapter 11, verse 18, we read again where it says that they are seeking a way to destroy him. But Jesus uses the word to destroy here, the same word. And he's saying, look, it's not going to happen. You're not going to destroy him. He is going to destroy you. You are the ones that are going to be destroyed. He's warning them of this catastrophic judgment and appealing to them, see yourselves in this parable and don't uh, continue in your path. Heed this warning of judgment. 
And isn't it amazing that in verse 12, they perceived that he told the parable against them. And they would have acted right there, but they realized the people may have realized that he's talking about the leaders too. And the people might have sided with, with Jesus and they couldn't do anything. But even as they saw that he was speaking about them, warning them, they proceed to do it. They continue in their direction. And so Jesus then underscores what will happen by quoting the scripture in Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Um, the, the story really didn't allow for a resurrection, right? Not in the form of this story. So this is brought in to underscore the fact that what you think you've done is going to be undone, okay? It's a way to underscore resurrection. You reject this stone, and you think it's done. You think he's, it's over, but that's not going to happen. He is going to be the chief stone of the building of God. You think you're guarding the building of God. It's going to be taken away from you, and it's going to be built on this stone that you reject, And it is fascinating that in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John are arrested and they're brought before these same rulers and scribes and the high priest and Annas is there, all of the high priestly family, to those leaders, they said, after the resurrection of Christ, and they were proclaiming the gospel and arrested for it, They said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They're proclaiming it's happened. The stone is established. The new people of God are formed. And here you are still attacking, still welcoming judgment upon yourself. Well, it's easy to separate ourselves from this. It's easy for us to stand outside and say, oh, just shake our heads and think, yeah, boy, we wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't do that. But we need to see how this warning, Mark doesn't mean for us to stand outside and just go tisk, 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 you know, at this Jewish leaders. He means for us to be warned by this ourselves. First, the warning obviously comes to leaders in the Christian church. If he is warning leaders of the Jewish church, we could say, certainly that warning would apply to leaders in the Christian church as well. And with those leaders, one of the things about them, one of the ways that they lived and did their ministry was to create their own traditions, their own rules, make up their own way to serve God. Jesus pointed this out earlier in Mark chapter 7. He called them hypocrites who abandoned God's word in favor of their own traditions. We pastors and elders and leaders in the church must heed his warning, therefore, not to abandon God's word for our own ideas, our own traditions. We otherwise would fall under the same judgment as these elders in Jerusalem. 
For instance, if we make up a Jesus who didn't really die for sins and didn't bear the wrath of God, and we say such wrath really doesn't exist, we are falling into the same thing of dis, uh, dismantling the word of God in favor of what we want it to be. If we invent a Jesus who wasn't raised from the dead, who didn't do miracles, we are displacing God's word in favor of our own ideas and tradition. If we create our own Jesus who doesn't speak against sin, a Jesus who doesn't call us to suffering for his sake, but a Jesus who calls us to be perpetually, increasingly healthy and wealthy, then we are falling in with the chief priests and scribes and elders Jesus warns us of judgment if we're going to displace his word with our own word. So I say this first to us, warns us that in doing so, we are rejecting Christ himself just as surely as these men were rejecting Christ. And then in other ways that the leaders of Jerusalem did. If we walk over people or abuse our authority, we see ourselves as lords of people instead of their servants. We draw attention to ourselves and away from God's glory. Then if this is what we practice as our a lifestyle, then we are falling under judgment as well. If we refuse to be like Christ or to teach Christ. Secondly, I think that this at least it's important at this time to speak to us as believers about warnings because I think it's hard for us to deal with warnings at times. This warning comes to us, don't reject Christ, but we might think, well, I don't reject Christ. Why would you, why would you say this? Or take the book of Hebrews. The whole book is written to Christians And it's warning Christians that are there in danger of apostatizing, of turning away from Christ. And the warning is don't reject Christ. Don't quit trusting in him and hoping in him. Don't give yourself to sin instead of to Christ. But then there are other passages like in Galatians 5 that list the works of the flesh. And then to Christians, he says, I I warn you as I have warned you. Anyone who practices these, practices these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so even we believers are faced with these warnings. And in the first place, I want to say the warning not to reject Christ is a constant warning, even to us who believe, to never turn that way again. Okay? Never turn that way again to refuse Christ and not trust him. That continual warning that keeps you, hopefully, and me far away from ever rejecting Christ again and the terrible consequences of doing that. It also shoes us away from sin and shoes us to Christ. You see, sin is ultimately there to pulled you away from God himself. Sin is meant to capture your heart and ultimately, if possible, if it had its way, it would draw you completely away from Christ. And so what this warn, these warnings uh, for us mean, don't ever, ever be casual with sin. It is dangerous. It is deadly. 
And he warns us in kindness. Would I not be warned of poison? Would I not be warned that this is a dangerous area? I remember uh, Dustin Salter talking about being in India. And he and a friend got to a camp. And they walked down the road. And a guy caught them there. They had walked a long way from the camp. And he, he was wide-eyed. And he said, you've got to get back to the camp now. And they're like, what? Elephants. And he was like, and these are, it's the elephant area, and if they see you, they will kill you, right? Who wouldn't want that warning, right? And so God is warning us against the danger of sin. Never be casual with sin, but entrust yourself to him who will keep you from being casual. Entrust yourself because he will enable you to continue to tend your heart to continue to to pull the weeds, to continue to bear fruit for his name. These aren't options for you and me. This is part of his salvation. It's part of his rescue that he plants you in Christ and puts you in that direction so that you more and more are conforming to his ways. And there's a difference between struggling with sin and repenting of sin and struggling and repenting and Some sins we struggle for long, long periods of time. There's a difference between that and just with no repentance at all, wallowing in your sin, and you never care about it. Now, sadly, we all know we've done some wallowing, right? Sadly, there are periods of our our lives where we've really wallowed and we've not cared. But by God's grace, what he does is he continues to work in our hearts, and he continues to point us to Jesus. And it's important that you not allow warnings to turn you away from trusting in Christ or undermine your faith in Christ. God doesn't give a warning in this way. Hey, they trust my goodness and willingness. I'm just going to mess that up with a good warning, you know. And so now you hear a warning like that in Galatians and you start to doubt whether you're good enough. You start to doubt whether he really could love you. You know how many sins are in your life. And it it really makes you push away from God's grace. Warnings are never to push you away from God's grace. We used to shoo chickens at my grandmother's house, right? We'd shoo them in the direction they're supposed to go. God's warnings are always shooing you to his grace, to his promise, to believe him, to trust him, to admit your weakness, to admit your helplessness, to say, to cry out to him, Lord, I can't deal with this sin. Lord, I'm overcome with this sin. Lord, I'm practicing this sin and I can't, I must not. Lord, rescue me, save me. Those are good words always for believers. Just continue to rescue me. Continue, Lord, to free me from the guilt of sin, to release me from the power of sin. And thank you one day, this thing I'm struggling with, as Brian referred to in the restoration, you'll take even the presence of sin from my life. And so we're always being, hopefully, more and more driven to trust him. Trust him to say, Lord, I've fallen. I trust you for forgiveness. I trust you for renewal. I trust you for that final day when it'll all be over and I will be clean and perfect. Don't let warnings do anything but shoo you to God's grace. And finally, I want to speak just a word to those who perhaps don't know Christ. You're here maybe visiting with a friend. Uh, You're looking into the claims of Christ And to say to you and to all of us that this warning of rejecting Christ uh, comes to us all. And it, 
you might think, well, for me, it's not as serious as it was for them. I mean, they actually killed Jesus. But in a way, it's more serious because now Jesus is not only speaking of his death and resurrection, he's actually accomplished his death and resurrection. He's actually done it. He's actually fully revealed God's uh, grace to us. As, As Jesus quoted from Psalm 118, it was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. And here's what happened. In the face of man's rejection of the son, man's hatred and murder of his son, he uses that evil act as they do it to be the means of his bearing the wrath of sin for them. How could he do that? How could he show such love in the midst of their killing his son? He uses the murder of his son for their salvation. That's what's been revealed to us about God. Marvelous indeed. Marvelous indeed. And so Jesus offers himself to you with that kind of love to rescue you from the guilt and punishment of your sin, to bring you into God's full favor forever. He offers himself to you to transform you to be a person of sacrificial and joyful love, just like Jesus is, more and more like him. He offers himself to you as the only one who can protect you about anything that could really do you harm ultimately. He is the only protection of anything that could destroy you. And he says, I will so oversee your life that everything that happens to you will be worked for your ultimate good. And I urge you, don't turn away from that favor and that kindness that Jesus Christ offers you. And be warned of the terrible consequences of not coming to know God in this life. And the terrible consequences of being shut out of this glorious restoration of the new heavens and the new earth. Don't be shut out of these things. There is no other name. No other name but Christ. And he offers himself to you. Trust him. Even now, trust him. For forgiveness and change and a glorious future in fellowship with God. In uh, World War II, there was a radar called the SCR-70 radar set. And at 7.02 in the, the morning of Pearl Harbor, they saw blips on their radar. It was a brand new system. Nobody had ever really seen it. Before, they saw blips on the radio. They saw so many blips that it just didn't seem possible. But at 7.20, they radioed the headquarters, and it was ignored. And at 7.55, as we know, the attack happened on Pearl Harbor. They didn't pay attention to the warning. And I urge you, in kindness, Jesus warns you not to refuse his grace. Let us pray. Oh, Father, bless us to give ourselves to the precious Lord Jesus and what he has done for sinners. Oh, Lord, enable us, each of us, to heed his warning and give ourselves to such a gracious king. For his sake we pray. Amen.